when the New York Times article came out and it listed the the fossil fuel usage by different public miners, you know, like they listed USBTC, and it's like I was at their site last week, and it's built on a wind farm, and the and New York Times listed like 92% of their power coming from fossil fuels, and it's like when you have that level of intellectual dishonesty, it's hard not to respond with satire like Pierre did. The relationship between Bitcoin mining and power is, is undeniable. Like if you can't have, if you can't procure affordable energy as a Bitcoin miner, it's when not if you stop operating because you're unprofitable. Bitcoin solves one of the primary problems with our money. And so it's, it's worth considering as a, a valuable uh, component of society worth investing energy into, like hands down. Introducing the Blockware Marketplace. Start mining Bitcoin today. This has the potential to transform the mining industry as now anyone can buy a Bitcoin ASIC using on-chain or Lightning, see its historical and live hash rate before purchasing, and be earning Bitcoin mining rewards in minutes. This brings transparency and turnkey mining to a whole other level. Start mining Bitcoin today at marketplace.blockware.solutions.com. Com. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week I have on Matt Lusteau. Matt, welcome. Hey Joe, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Let's dive right into it. I want to know for those that may not know who you are, what's your background and how did you get into Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining? Absolutely. So my name is Matt Lusto. I've uh, been in the Bitcoin space uh, kind of as a hobby and recently professionally for the past three years. Uh, I really started paying attention um, coming into 2021 from a pretty tangential approach, you could say. Uh, I did 10 years in oil and gas, uh, working offshore as a, a, an installation engineer with a mechanical background, um, mechanical engineering, um, and then um, wandered my way through a few different uh, areas, ended up working in pipeline up until <clears throat> very recently prior to joining uh, Luxor Technologies. Um, and so... Right at the beginning of 21, I started looking at some interesting subsea data center concepts, and that kind of piqued my interest into, uh, I guess you could say, novel applications of technology in weird locations. So I was looking at that, and then I started thinking, I wonder if you could like mine Bitcoin subsea. And so like I looked at that and thought about that for a bit, because like it'd be a way to monetize uh, subsea data centers if there wasn't uh, immediate demand. But um, that kind of kicked everything off, and eventually, within like a, a month or two, I'd already bought my first Bitcoin, bought a cold wallet. I started pretty fast, um, and then jumped into it pretty quickly and studied quickly. Played around in the altcoin space for a brief, brief time, and realized eh, this is kind of uh, superfluous, if you will. And then discovered the signal that is Bitcoin pretty quickly, and um, moved my attention and focus onto Bitcoin exclusively over the past probably year and a half. And so that included going to Bitcoin meetups, um, specifically the one here, in, uh, not here, because I'm actually in Fort Worth at the uh, the uh, mining summit by Texas Blockchain Council. The meetup in Houston, which is put on by Unchain Capital, it's a really good uh, meetup with lots and lots of people. Uh, I started going to the bull market. There's like 200 people at a time. It was shoulder to shoulder. It was really exciting. Um, but that kind of helped to, like I said, really refine my uh, attention and help me ignore some of the distractions that were out there um and so like 
relatively early on as a mechanical engineer, I started engineer. I started to really appreciate and understand the connection between Bitcoin mining and, and energy. Um, they're directly tied. It's the only only thing that determines not the only thing. It's the primary thing that determines profitability at this point uh, from a fiat perspective. Um, and so I just started going down that rabbit hole pretty quickly, and. Um, I knew I wanted to work in the mining space because that was probably where all of the, not probably, that was, that was where all of my transferable skills really kind of intersected. Uh, and so I met a few people at the, the meetup and, and a position opened up at Luxor for the, uh, the firmware business development role. And so one of the guys, Mario Gutierrez, he's a, he's a good friend now. He, uh, he made the introduction and within a month, I think I had a, an offer from the guys there and, it's been a whirlwind since because we've uh, gone from very private internal testing only on our firmware, LuxOS, uh, to full blast public release in March, on the Ides of March. So um, it's been a really exciting four months, five months, whatever it is. It feels it, it's Bitcoin time definitely uh, stretches things out for a bit. So yeah, here yeah. we are. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely want to get into LuxOS. I think that's very interesting. I guess taking a step back and, and thinking like really big picture since you started attending like the Bitcoin meetups back in 2021, how is like the energy and, and Bitcoin mining industry, like thinking of those as like, I guess, two separate entities that are like kind of coming together. Like how has that relationship changed since, you know, 2021 was like a raging bull market. I'm sure most of the energy companies were like interested in it, but like not really like super deep. And then now it's like a major, you know, it's been a bear market for them for most of 2022 are like, has the energy industry like inched closer towards Bitcoin or like did the bear market scare them? What has like changed from your perspective since you have that energy perspective? So everyone says Bitcoin mining or yeah, Bitcoin mining is uh, location agnostic. Um, while that's like true from a purely geographic standpoint, it's not jurisdictionally agnostic. Um, you have plenty of wind and solar in California, but their energy prices are through the roof because of less reliable base, load, uh, base generation. Um, so in Texas, where I live, um, the connection between Bitcoin mining and energy companies is, is quite the symbiosis, if you will. It's a very synergistic relationship where um, everyone's heard about ERCOT, right? So there's a, um, a specific program in ERCOT, um, the Large Flexible Load Program, where ERCOT basically takes control of Bitcoin miners operations for periods of time during peak demand and turns off the mine. So peak demand, you've got everyone turning on their AC in the middle of the summer or everyone turning on their heat in the middle of winter. Um, ERCOT turns off Bitcoin mines that enroll in this program. So it's, it's actually a direct relationship between the energy uh, producers and operators here in Texas and Bitcoin miners. Um, it's a very different uh, relationship if you just go a little bit further north to New York, right, where there's a moratorium and it's even the, the details of the moratorium are a little bit, uh, I guess, politically phrased, if you will. But um, yeah, the, the, the energy there, the, the relationship between Bitcoin mining and power is, is undeniable. Like if you can't have, if you can't procure affordable energy as a Bitcoin miner, it's a matter of time. It's, it's when, not if you stop operating because you're unprofitable, because you can say, oh, I'll mine Bitcoin unprofitably for now, but um, everyone has bills to pay and, and energy companies won't pay to just sit there for nothing. 
Yeah, it is interesting. I guess, you know, Bitcoin miners and Bitcoin ASICs basically just gravitate to the cheapest energy available in the world, which is quite fascinating to really think about that. Absolutely. Um, let's, let's dive into, you know, starting to dive into the idea of like firmware for, for miners, big picture, like, you know, what is overclocking and underclocking and, and how can that be useful, uh, for, for, for different miners? I love that you start there because it is exactly where almost everyone starts and it's probably, and it's, it's ultimately, it is the primary functionality that you get from firmware but it's not nearly as important without the context of why and when you over or underclock. Uh, so for anyone who's not familiar, overclocking and underclocking are where you adjust the clock speed of a Bitcoin miner. So if you purchase a, an S19 or S19J Pro, whatever from Bitmain, you get it, you del they deliver it, whatever, you plug it in, it has, or before you plug it in, you look at the nameplate, there's a very specific 96T, 104T, whatever, that's terahash. That's what we call that nameplate hash rate, right? Um, that hash rate is fixed with the stock firmware. Um, meaning when you plug it in, it's going to go that fast unless it's broken. And it's not going to change. Um, if if uh, it gets really hot and your bit, your miner starts to overheat, you'll probably lose some hash rate. Or at the very least, you'll, you'll use more power for the same amount of hash rate. And then that's it. It's fixed. There's no control. Um, and so for operators in a dynamic power market like Texas, that may not be ideal. Um, for instance, if you have contractual obligations to maintain a certain amount of demand on the grid for the really affordable power rate that you've negotiated for, um, you may have to maintain operation regardless of how hot it is outside, right? And if your miner can't keep up with that because the stock firmware doesn't give you any control over it, you're kind of up a creek, right? So what firmware allows you to do is says, okay, your nameplate is 104 terahash. Well, you see that it's really hot outside, so let's start to dial back the clock speed. Um, you can think of it as kind of like horsepower, or not, not necessarily horsepower, or, or yeah, let's go with horsepower, and then you can chip it. I don't know if you're familiar with that analogy in the, the car world. You can There's special microchips you can put in certain cars, and it'll give you more or less horsepower. Um, hmm. So basically, you can get more or less performance out of your miner, depending on the operational parameters. So more, meaning overclocking, or less, meaning underclocking. It's a pretty simple, uh, well, whoa, that's a, that's a drastic simplification. Um, operationally, it's pretty simple. Uh, the mechanics of, of firmware are anything but simple, because this is uh, a ground-up build. Um, a lot of options out there are... Uh, basically using the stock firmware and then adjusting certain things to give some control to users. Um, but our, our strategy was to actually take it from the ground up. So we just ignore any operations, uh, any, any um, software or firmware that's already on the machine, start from the ground up with our own miner that we built in the programming lang language Rust. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's very fascinating to think about overclocking and underclocking. When I originally thought about this, I thought back to like 2021 when every you know public miner and private miner in the world was like, let's just get as much hash rate as possible. Maybe that's like building immersions and overclocking to the moon. And then now it's like just to get more and more hash rate because it was so profitable to mine Bitcoin back then. And now it's like some 
underclocking is kind of the next big thing where it's like, okay, you know, energy prices were higher, may still be high for some people. Price of Bitcoin is down mining difficulty is up. Let's underclock these things, earn less Bitcoin, but pay for even less power and we become quote unquote more profitable. And so now underclocking, I feel like is the, the new thing. Would you agree? Like is underclocking, like the underrated uh, thing in Bitcoin mining right now? It has absolutely emerged as a, a sneaky option for miners to leverage in this, uh, this recent bear market. Um, I have to give props where props are due. Uh, Isaac and Reed at Cathedra, um, they did a really, really comprehensive study on clock speeds, power consumption, and it, it, they posted on Twitter. It's all open to, to anyone who's curious about it. Um, but, uh, Yes, underclocking is a very uh, sneaky beneficial option depending on uh, market conditions. So, like the the thing that's uh, that kind of simplifies it is if you a lot of people think about the price of Bitcoin, the difficulty having all these things, and while they're relevant to the the um, the operations of miners, you can simplify the the analysis if you just think about hash price. Um, hash price is how much Bitcoin or US dollars, depending on the exchange rate at the time, but the, the base level of hash price is how much Bitcoin you get for a given amount of hash rate at, a, at any point in time. Luxor has hash rate index, and you can go and look at the hash, hash price over time. So if you think of hash rate as a commodity, which we do, um, that hash, that commodity has a price. So if you map it over time, you can look at hash price. So when hash price is up, it means either Bitcoin price is up or um, network activity is down, right? So when you have less network uh, participation, you get more Bitcoin per block uh, or per per petahash or terahash, whatever your unit of hash is, um, which generally translates to more dollars. But the, again, it's a, a single metric that helps you simplify your analysis. So if hash price is up, you may want to overclock. But for the past year, <laughs> with the uh, with the bear market, um, hash price tanked, and and there were a lot of people right on the margins. We saw it hurt a lot of different miners, um, and I'm, <laughs> I would not be so bold as to say that firmware would have saved them. Um, there are numerous complexities to running a mining operation, but it is an extra tool in the tool belt of miners that gives them some flexibility in responding to market conditions. Whereas you may be able to reduce your opex because when you underclock you're consuming less power. When you're consuming less power, your OPEX is going down, right? Because everyone saw power prices go a little bit crazy in 2022. Um, combine that with uh, Bitcoin price going down, so your hash price was going down. Revenue was down and OPEX was up. It was a really tough market for miners. So firmware gives you a, a tool in the tool belt to where um, I think Reed and Isaac have said publicly they were trying to get as many S19s into the same power supply as they were putting an S9. Now the silicone in an S19 is way more efficient than that in an S9. That lets you get more hash rate out of the individual machines. But if you want to maintain longevity, because that's ultimately another factor, is if you reduce your your um, your clock speed and your voltage, you get a longer lifespan out of your silicone in general. There's two factors that affect the silicon. It's temperature and voltage. And if you can reduce voltage and reduce clock speed, you, you reduce uh, temperature. So 
bringing all these, these variables down increases your longevity, reduces your OPEX. Ultimately, it should reduce your, your maintenance expenses as well because you're not taxing the machines as much, so you don't need to go repair them as much. Your fans are running slower. The, the benefits do start to compound when you're in a bear market and you need to conserve on cost, when you need to tighten the belt. Um, that may come to be extremely beneficial when we approach the halving. Um, no one can predict the price of Bitcoin, obviously. I mean, people try, but... Um, What's, by the way, what's the latest on the Balaji bet? How close are we? I forget how many <laughs> days away we are, but I'm, I'm itching to see if we get there. That'll be fun. But I feel like I feel like we're like 50 days away or something like that. Running out of time. Oh, it's plenty of time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, with um, as you're tightening the belt around having, like, I mean, miners are going to have their revenue cut in half overnight. Um, it, if they're not acting right now to, to place every tool on the table or in in their repertoire like they're running severe operational risk when it comes to that time frame because if bitcoin hasn't doubled overnight in in, in us dollars their power bills are going to be about the same they're going to have to account for that somehow right yeah definitely i think that was it's very interesting to think about this like i guess i want to know like how much can underclocking actually like improve your margins like in my mind Obviously, if you have like a 100T machine and you cut the tear hash in half to 50, if your power costs just get cut in half, you don't really do anything. Like your margin percentage is going to be the same. Like if you do underclock to a certain amount, what can a miner maybe expect like their margins to increase by or like the energy efficiency of their machine? If, so if I'll be sense. honest, that's one of the things we're struggling to quantify right now just because we're still relatively early in the process. Um, I can give you some some qualitative data, but I can't quantify it yet. We're actually actively working to build some uh, test labs, if you will, to start to really do some in-depth analysis um, because we want to be able to come to to users and, and and potential clients and say, look, this is this is exactly what you stand to gain. Um, I can tell you qualitatively that when you reduce your your operating temperatures, your efficiency goes up. Um, the silicone, or let me rephrase this, so like. It's important to note that when you look at the temperatures on an S19 right now, you're actually looking at temperature sensors that are on the board. There's like one exception, but it's not super common. So there's four or two temperature sensors on the board. That's not actually the temperature of the silicone because it's just a different place. The silicone is generating the heat and that heat has to dissipate. So the board temperatures are actually a little bit cooler than the actual silicone. But you can use that as an indicator to know how hot your silicone is just as a, a direction, right? Like if Bitmain actually has some recommendations on, on the offsets, but the the numbers that we've seen is if your board temperatures are between like uh, 45 Celsius and 55 Celsius, that's where you get some of the most, uh, the, the best efficiency, meaning joules per terahash um, out of the machine. So lowering your clock speed, let's say by 50%, on its surface doesn't necessarily reduce your power consumption. However, by lowering your clock speed, you also lower your temperature, stressing the mine the, the miner a little bit less, giving you the opportunity to get better efficiency. You don't get to see any of that if you're using Bitmain stock firmware. And so like some of this is about biding your time in the bear market, right? Like if you if you really do believe in, in Bitcoin and you've got this this long-term thesis um, and you're willing to stick to it, um, even if you're not like making your margins like hundreds of percent or like let's say five percent better ten percent better it can reduce your expenditures to where if you've got 
cash flow tightening, you might be able to make it through the, the next month where you see a bounce on Bitcoin, your revenue comes back up and you can, you get that breathing room, right? So again, it's not, none of this is a silver bullet. It's giving you a tool to respond to the market conditions that are ultimately going to present themselves at some point. I see. Interesting. So it's currently, I guess we're unsure of like how much like efficiency gains, quote unquote, you can get. You do think, I guess if you can optimize the ideal temperature, that's going to lead to like efficiency type gains, or like if it's really hot outside or really cold, like that's going to mean your efficiency is getting significantly worse from originally, you know, what it would be. And so like, if you can underclock it, maybe that'll cool it down to like an ideal temperature and your efficiency would be better than what it was operating at, you know, full capacity. Is that right? More or less. And yes. So the, the point is voltage and frequency are actually the only two variables that you control on the miner. You can increase your voltage, which can increase temperature, but only really mostly if you increase your frequency. So if you increase your voltage and frequency together, you get more, more heat. Um, if you get more heat, you get less efficiency. Um, the other thing to think about from the perspective of efficiency, a lot of people look at just the, like, so it's joules per terahash. That's ultimately what, what it boils down to, but also uptime, right? So like if, let's say you push your voltage and frequency right to the edge of temperatures and your efficiency is still good, your joules per terahash, but because you're running so hot, you actually have intermittent off, uh, downtime, right? Now you're terahash per day is down resulting and you may not be consuming as much power but your efficiency on that machine is down so i i'm working to coin this term across the industry but oee overall equipment effectiveness it's stolen from the manufacturing space where you're looking at um oh i'm, I'm gonna blank on this but it's uh quality output i've got a slide somewhere but um mm-hmm quality up, output and uptime, right? So what's your uptime as a percentage of your, your operating hours? You can assume 24 hours because Bitcoin miners don't need to turn off. Um, output meaning uh, terahash per second, like you've got a nominal and then you've got a actual, you compare these two and then you've got uh, quality, meaning like how, how many shares get rejected or whatever, because that's another factor. Um, so you take those three factors and look at them in the context of each other, meaning you multiply them and you get a percentage that tells you the actual equipment effectiveness, because if you chase one of those metrics, you often offset the others. So just a, a, a different way to look at it from the, the plain uh, terahash per second or joules per terahash. Huh. Yeah. It's very interesting to think about. Um, I guess like, I know you guys have Lux OS, which I, you know, mm -hmm. kind of been mentioning it a little bit. What other options are out there right now? Is I guess most people just using the default Bitmain operating firmware, or or what are what are the different? You know, I guess Brains has their OS. Mm -hmm. um, what are the other? Is that all the main ones, or am I missing any? There's one other uh, Vanish. Um, most people, I would say, the majority of miners do use the stock firmware. Um, there's a number of reasons, uh, apprehensions, if you will, that, that kind of lead them down that route. Um, but the other two major market players are, are brains and Venish in some capacity. So like, um, that's definitely our, our biggest competitors besides stock firmware. If you've thrown your hands up trying to run a lightning node, relax, you're not an idiot. It's not intuitive and manual management means you won't survive. 
The guys at Encrypted Energy are fans of the pod and have 20 openings in their private beta for readers to trial automated L&D operations like rebalancing and channel fee management. Email paul at encryptedenergy.com and mention Blockware Intelligence for personalized onboarding. Foundation is one of my favorite Bitcoin companies. Their product, Passport, is one of the best Bitcoin hardware wallets on the market. It is air-gapped and highly secure. I strongly encourage you to go to foundationdevices.com and use the code BLOCKWARE and get $10 off your passport. It's a great way to easily and securely store the private keys to your Bitcoin. Yeah, it makes sense. And one one question going back to the idea of underclocking and overclocking. I guess if you, for some reason, decided like, hey, you want to overclock your machine an extreme amount, and obviously that could potentially, like, I guess, heat up your machine and potentially damage it at some point. What are the, like, obviously that's a risk. What is, can you, like, explain that risk in more detail, right? Like, what, what would happen? Like, would your hashboard, like, just break and you have to get a new hashboard? Would, like, your fans break and you have to get a new fan? Or, like, is it, like, could you just completely damage it where you have to buy pretty much a completely new machine? I guess, what are, like, the possibilities to, like, completely overclocking your machine? Yeah, I mean, we obviously, like, we definitely have a warning banner, like, hey, overclocking can damage your machine. Um, and to that point, like, you can do damage, yep. And that looks like a couple of different failure modes, obviously. Um, you can, like, literally just short-circuit, like, burn up a component and chip to where it just makes a, a continuous wire and, like, you don't, or a short in the wire, and you, you don't get continuity through that, that chip, which can translate to that whole chain being broken, meaning you lose f function on one-third of the chips on that hash board, potentially. Um, or you could get a failure across multiple chips, across like depending on how hot it gets and how hard you're running it, which could be a, just a whole hash board out. Um, you can also get power supply uh, failures because when you're running hotter, you, like, you can heat up the the insulation on on like transformers and stuff like that the, the windings on transformers that can cause failure um there's definitely risks there when you're running it so like um monitoring temperatures is essential and that's one of the things that we're really proud about um the api that LuxOS has developed is very comprehensive um pretty much any data you can imagine is available and then all of the commands can be issued with a, a standard rest api um, provided you have network access to the machines. Um, and then we also have a feature, um, the health checker. So it goes to every chip and checks the health of that chip. And we're actually doing some some iterations on that health checker. That'll give you a little more granularity in coming months. Um, but if you're overclocking, we give you the tools to monitor your machines as you're going to where you can say, hey, I need to dial it back there. I, I went too far on this one. And so what that gives you is the ability to Kind of tune your machines on the fly from from a distance you don't have to have a super complex algorithm running on the machine you can actually have some remote command and control of your your fleet nice yeah it's really cool i guess is there anything else that uh is a part of lux os like does it cost money or how, how does that work <laughs> so it does it actually doesn't cost money but it costs uh commodity it's a uh, hash rate so the way our, our business model works is there's a developer fee that comes from back in the day when there were developers working on this kind of for free, like they weren't getting contracts or anything, but they would steer hash rate to a specific account of, that they owned. Um, and so they could 
that hash rate would would yield them Bitcoin as well. So that's that's the model we've chosen. Um, we have a 2.8 percent uh, dev fee, which comes back to Luxor, and then um, we reduce pool fees if you use Luxor's pool as well. So um, we don't make you double dip on the the pool fee and on the the dev fee. And then from there, we also have uh, discounted tiers for for clients who bring on a, a significant portion of uh, hash rate. Makes sense. Uh, cool. I think that was covering the firmware very, very in depth. Uh, let's talk about what's going on with like energy and CO2 and Bitcoin. I'm sure you saw Pierre Richard, uh, the video from Riot Platforms talking about how Bitcoin ASICs do not emit CO2, which is fact checked correct, right? Yeah, um, math checks out. <laughs> um, so like, I guess, what are your thoughts on, on, on all of what's going on around that? It ultimately comes down to your perspective on problem solving, right? If your prerogative on problem solving is that top-down solutions are the way, then like that video pissed you off big time. Like you, you, you like you're there are countless memes that could describe the emotions you felt with that video. Like you just resented it. Um, because ultimately people disagree on so many things about the, the climate, not environment, like the environment around climate change, uh, like the, the social discussions around that, uh, around climate change. Like it's so heated amongst different people that like, that was bound to infuriate some thrill others. And so like, I enjoyed it thoroughly because I think there is some, some shenanigans to be had around the, the concept of scope two and scope three emissions. Like there's absolutely reasons to question the, the, uh, legitimacy of, of such calculations, not to say that consumers should never concern themselves with the source of their generation, just to say that discriminating against Bitcoin miners because they consume power from the grid and the grid's mix is dirty seems a little bit off base. Like if, if you're just looking first principles, how, how do I solve problems as a, as a, a mechanical engineer or whatever, like I'm not really mad at the Bitcoin miners. Um, I'm generally a believer in free markets. And so like when it comes to power generation and cost-effective power generation, Bitcoin mining is going to find the most affordable power generation. Many proponents of, of renewable solutions like wind and solar will shout to high heaven that it's more affordable than, than, um, than thermo, thermo, uh, I'm drawing a blank, but fossil fuels or, or even, uh, nuclear. If that were the case, what, what's the need for, for the massive subsidies that do exist? Like it, it, if you look at the, the build out of, of renewable power in, in Texas, a lot of it is funded by, by, uh, tax incentives and such. So like, I think the idea of like targeting Bitcoin miners in this context who are actually subsidizing power operations in West Texas, that would be unprofitable otherwise, like I, when when the New York Times article came out and it listed 
the the fossil fuel usage by different public miners and like they listed usbtc and it's like i was at their site last week and it's built on a wind farm and they and new york times listed like 92 percent of their power coming from fossil fuels and it's like when you have that level of intellectual dishonesty it's hard not to respond with satire like pierre did because like if they're not going to take the fact checking seriously how can you expect anyone else to like do a fact check that was actually accurate <laughs> like despite how ridiculous it is because he's not trying to engage on scope two scope three like he said like hey this is kind of a ridiculous concept to begin with so how are you how do you come to these conclusions if you're being intellectually honest which they like they weren't so yeah it's the whole conversation is is it boils down to like i try not to get too caught up in in it because i i know more or less what i believe and think about it um but the problem is a lot of people are just kind of entrenched in their their perspective on it which makes it really hard to have conversations about it yeah it's it's just so strange because it's like you don't really see like thinking really big picture you don't see people criticizing teslas or electric vehicles and being like no don't plug that in there because you're going to use fossil fuels right they're like most people before this, I would say like, we're praising electric vehicles and saying like, Hey, like that's like, you're, you're getting that from the electricity. It's not directly emitting fossil fuels. But then when you look at electric money or ASICs that are just basically building, you know, Bitcoin blocks, people are like, Oh no, no, you, you can't just look at, it's only looking at, you know, the machine that's not emitting electricity. You got to look back at all of these other steps in the process. And it's like, gosh, you know, it's, it's just completely two different standards for for two different like industries it's kind of crazy yeah and that part comes down to utility right like the the publicly perceived utility of bitcoin versus a car like that makes it really easy to rationalize the difference in in value judgment making it really easy to go and target <clears throat> bitcoin miners in that context so like it definitely speaks to kind of the the need for content makers in our space to to advocate for education right like we have to educate normies like we have to we have to help people understand that there is a problem with our money and bitcoin potentially solve well <clears throat> bitcoin solves one of the primary problems with our money and so it's it's worth considering as a, a valuable uh, component of society worth investing energy into like hands down like that that's why i jumped in the space like i I I joined Luxor at when Bitcoin was at 16k. So like I, I'm convinced, but like we have to make sure that we convince others because if we don't, like there is there will be a tidal wave of people upset with Bitcoin mining for some reason in the future and I I I know everyone talks about how Bitcoin doesn't care. No, Bitcoin doesn't, but like social pressures can can yield some really unfortunate results for for people who who do participate in the space. I mean, a, a great example, like so, the timing of this New York Times article correlates with this. Uh, are you familiar with this bill in Texas, uh, SB seventeen fifty one? Yeah, I, I don't know too much about it, but I've seen seen the ramblings of it. I, I mean, the bottom line is it's a really bad bill. It specifically targets Texas Bitcoin miners. Um, it eliminates competition for anyone competing for that large flexible load so like it limits so ERCOT has a certain amount of uh, dollars they get to spend on ancillary services ancillary services are just people who can provide uh, dispatchable power generation or load curtailment 
in times of high demand on the grid. So they have a certain amount of money they can spend on ancillary services throughout the year. This bill, the, the most insidious part of this bill is it would cap the enrollment of Bitcoin miners in the ancillary services program at 10%. And it's already over 10% on, on multiple days. So like it's anti-competitive because it prevents Bitcoin miners from winning at something they're already really good at. Like, hey, turn off. Okay. <laughs> Flip the switch. And they're getting better. Because like when you start looking at the applications of firmware, like you can turn it down rather than turning it off. Because that's how most of them work right now is they actually just turn a certain percentage of miners off. Whereas if you go to underclock, you could actually underclock in your response, come back up more quickly, and you don't you don't cycle the machines. There's a, there's a lot of upsides to that. So they're getting better at it. So like the trajectory is to be a bigger part of ERCOT. And so like all of the, the good things that people have talked about Bitcoin for a long time um, in, in the in energy space is could be totally offset by this bill. So like it's a terrible bill. And like if you look at the, the timing of this New York Times article, this bill gets to the Texas Senate and it went through the Senate unanimously. Um, I don't think that's a huge mistake or a, a huge coincidence. Like I, th I think there's definitely... Um, there's definitely incentives to to reduce the effectiveness of Bitcoin in in the economy and in society, um, but yeah, there's some stuff there that just doesn't smell right. Yeah, I mean, you made some really interesting points. I wrote down a few few thoughts. I, I definitely agree about the utility thing. Like, you know, if ninety ninety five ninety nine percent of the world, you know, thinks doesn't really understand Bitcoin at all. I mean, most, even a lot of Bitcoiners probably don't really understand Bitcoin at all. It's just kind of this alien technology that we have been handed. People are interacting with it in different ways. So yeah, like if, if you are like not, a, if you have no Bitcoin, you know, you might think Bitcoin mining is a waste per se. Um, but I disagree with that. And I think many Bitcoiners would disagree with that. And I also yep. think like, I agree with you. It's about education and like kind of user adoption, right? Like if the New York Times had 50% of their cash in Bitcoin, I'd imagine they probably wouldn't have published something like this <laughs> attacking Bitcoin. And so if we had more people holding Bitcoin and using Bitcoin as savings technology, I, I would imagine, you know, those attacks might start to go away. Uh, but, you know, we got someone's got to explain Bitcoin to the New York Times and get them to, to hold some. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That'd be nice. Um, but yeah, Texas is interesting. So like if that bill does get passed like is it i, I saw like it it passed one part of i guess the texas i don't know branch or yeah. something or it, it's a bicameral legislature just like uh, the u.s so we have house and senate it went through the senate committee without opposition um which gave it a whole lot of momentum going into the senate for the vote yeah um and it went through the senate without opposition as well um, oh. so now it's going to go over to the house the, the texas state house um, where it will go to committee first for review and then potentially go to the the House for a vote if uh, the committee sees fit to, to present it for a vote. But it would need the House to, to vote and not make changes or anything like that. And then it would eventually also have to go to the uh, governor's desk for signature. Hmm. So is this like our odds are this does end up getting passed or do we know? I think it's too early to tell. I don't think... It has great odds in the House. I think uh, people like the Texas Blockchain Council and Satoshi Action Fund, Dennis Porter, Lee Bratcher, they've done a really good job of lobbying with the uh, the representatives here to make sure that they understand like, hey, not only is this bad for Bitcoin miners, because that may not 
that may not resonate for anyone. They may not care. Um, this is bad for Texans because what happens when the competition is capped for that, that demand response, for that power in, in times of urgency on the grid, um, when you have less competition, that generally means higher prices for consumers. So peaker plants will benefit from this. Battery companies will benefit from this. Consumers won't and Bitcoin miners won't. So like ultimately, um, those guys have done a really good job of, of communicating some of the impacts. Um, and so I'm not like terribly concerned, but it definitely speaks to the need for people to understand not just Bitcoin, but how do they get power? How, how do you get to flip a switch and get lights? Because go back 100 years and that's not so easily taken for granted. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I guess like Peaker Plants and uh, battery companies, they basically would be benefiting at the expense of both Bitcoin miners and retail electricity consumers. So everyone's kind of getting hurt by this, except those two groups, which is interesting. Qui bono. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to do one last question, then we can probably wrap it up. And, okay. you know, very big picture, long, per long perspective. What do you think the Bitcoin mining industry looks like in 10 years after we have three more halvings? Oh, man. I, three more halvings, 10 years. Like, I'm, I'm starting to feel old just from, like, every angle I could I can imagine. Um, man, there's a, I, the volatility in just the general socioeconomic environment of the world right now is, it makes 10-year predictions so hard, but, um, a lot of it's going to depend on on the direction that people take because I think like the U.S. could make some really devastating decisions to to the Bitcoin industry, the Bitcoin mining industry specifically. Um, if we continue down this this uh, path of like demonizing consumers of power, as we talked about earlier, it's not good for Bitcoin. Not good for Bitcoin mining. Um, now, people can argue that, oh, we'll decentralize the, the network, but um, what I think would be best for the Bitcoin network is <clears throat> increased hash rate in places that participate, that, that participate in, in open systems in good faith. Like, um, But that, that could be very drastically harmed by some thoughtless legislation, like the... the statements that the Biden administration made a couple of weeks back or months back about like the 30% excise tax on power used for Bitcoin mining. Like that's entirely unprecedented in, in like, maybe not entirely unprecedented. I'll, I'll dial it back a bit, but that's like extremely discriminatory and like not, a, not really legal as far as I understand from a constitutional perspective. I'm no lawyer, but like that'd be devastating for the mining industry in, in the U S. So like how we navigate the next couple of years just in this administration and, and, all this stuff, I think that's going to determine the outcome. But um, let's say we maintain status quo for like just the current regulatory environment. Like, there's been a big push for uh, grid miners. I think that model works in in the deregulated markets like Texas, um, and there are some other states that have similar operational structures. You might see that to see that grow, but like one of the biggest opportunities that I think is out there is the uh, flare gas play. Um, the Middle East has, like, everyone talks about flare gas in, like, Texas or the U.S. or whatever, and, like, they've got all these uh, emissions things or whatever. I don't, I'm, I'm not a reservoir guy or, or anything like that, but, like, the Middle East has so much more flare gas, and not just flare gas, but routinely flare gas. There's two different types. There's, like, 
uh, intermittent where it's not scheduled and it's not planned, but it's flared because you're doing some kind of operation and you've got this gas and you have to do something with it. Otherwise, you have to shut in the well and that takes time to bring it back online. In, the, in some cases, you have gas that's just coming out of the well, but you don't build the pipeline to pipe that in because you're, you're taking off the crude. They have a whole lot of that kind of gas in the Middle East. If they decide to get in, and they decide to get in in a large way, the amount of power they have is astounding. It's, it's legitimate. So, like, you could see off-grid flare gas mining really, really start to go go crazy over there. Um, and there's definitely a market for it here. Um, and so I think you've got the possibility for centralizing forces in places like ERCOT where you have really affordable power and stabilizing grids and all this stuff. But I think you also have some really interesting forces that could decentralize it. So I think, honestly, I think there's a, a good spread and it, I hate to like kind of get too squirrely on you, but like, I think there's a, a really wide variety of like the, the, the bell curve on, not the bell curve, but the spaghetti chart for hurricanes in the Gulf, like they have the, the funnel. It's pretty wide, man. Like we could, we could be really centralized if, if the grids recognize the, 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 uh, upside to, to stabilizing with Bitcoin mining, or you could go to the entire other side where like the only way that oil and gas operators can really be, um, in compliance with emission standards is if they're doing Bitcoin mining, in which case like it's super decentralized and then off grid. So like, there's a lot of different angles we could end up, but I think it's reasonable to suspect that hash rate grows. And then I think some of the things that'll start to play out is the seasonal nature where you have curtailment in winter and summer. So like, that's something I expect to see coming up. So like, I think we'll be tapering off on hash rate very soon on the network hash rate because summer's coming up. I've already heard reports of miners being down in Texas, West Texas, it's hot out there. And, and the miners don't wanna to be too hot like we talked about earlier. So I think you'll see hash rate begin to be a little bit more seasonal. And you saw it in the winter, uh, there was some negative difficulty adjustments in, in the winter when, when uh, miners had to curtail. So I think that's something that you'll see emerge and I would expect it to play out further as we get into the, that 10 year range. Nice. Yeah. That was a really interesting take that I agree with. I haven't necessarily thought about that or seen many people talk about it, but I like that a lot. Yeah. It's going to be fascinating to see how it plays out. I mean, another obviously critical factor of what happens in 10 years is the price of Bitcoin, right? I mean, if after the next halving, we have $200,000 Bitcoin, I mean, there's just going to be so much like so much hash rate is probably going to be trying to come online and there might be battles with, you know, states and governments. It, it could, it could get kind of weird, I guess. Um, especially if the price of the asset is just so much higher than what it is today. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see how, how it plays out. Um, it's probably a great spot to wrap it up. Where can people find more about you and, and learn more about Luxor? So Luxor.tech number one, uh, Luxor.tech slash firmware for the firmware slash RFQ slash, uh, I don't remember where our derivatives product is, but uh, great website. We just re-revised the website. So it's it's looking pretty slick. Um, you can find me uh, at TDR underscore M Lusto on Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. But uh, if you're curious about Luxor firmware or any of the other products that we offer, pool derivatives, ASIC brokerage, we're happy to have you reach out and uh, we'll see if we can't get you taken care of.